Hi, everyone. Just wanted to remind you once again that today's episode will be part three of the discussion we had on the philosophy of work. And in this part, we'll consider questions like, does being hardworking make you more deserving of resources? And we'll ask whether being hardworking is a virtue or not. I also want to let you know that next week we plan to have a really cool guest on the show. So make sure you tune in for that. And we hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Badlands, that overlooked place where philosophical thought runs into the political concerns of the day. All right, well, we're back from a quick snack break so that we could increase our productivity for the last bit of this discussion. As good total workers would. So that so we've gotten through two arguments so far. Yeah. In favor of the value of work. So, but on the snack break thing. Yeah. That's kind of funny though. Just in part. So like I, because we started doing this topic, I, so I normally use a thing called a Chronodex, which is a stamp. It's a product. It's part of the productivity tool section of stationery. It's actually really cool. Yeah. It's I'm not a really... into things like that, but it's really cool. <laughs> so it's like, it's a stamp, kind of looks like a old school kind of compass kind of aesthetic. Uh, and it's just got the hours of the day on it. And so you can sort of do a stamp and then you can do some coloring in and like map, map out what your day is going to be like. Right. And so that can be really useful if you're like a grad school or academic, you haven't, work doesn't put a structure on for you. So anyway, I do this normally, but I added an extra feature this week, which is tallying up the number of hours that I was counting, like that I was registering on for work. And so I had to go through that. Does this morning's recording count as work or not? Like, am I going to count that or not? I decided yes, but something I didn't count. <laughs> we can't pay you. I'm sorry. <laughs> something I didn't count that you then corrected <laughs> me for when I got home was I wasn't counting like a lunch break mm-hmm. as work. That doesn't count. But normal, you know, office yep. work, you are paid for that time. Yep. Um, lunch break is work work. Right. But lunch break wasn't work work. And so once I factored the lunch break in, I was, you know, working longer than full-time working week of 40 hours would by have a lot. you working. By, by on, a, on, a, on a slow week. <laughs> on a slow week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I just just get snack break, not work, ready for the work work. Well, what you told me last night, that was work. Maybe so, it shouldn't be work though. It's Isn't not a break. Well, yeah, I don't know anymore. <laughs> also, can we get a couple pictures of your Chronodex things and post them on Twitter? Sure. <laughs> that would actually be kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. So right, first two arguments. Actually, we didn't even talk about, and I guess we'll, we'll kind of get there, but we didn't even talk about the meaning and purpose argument in the future. I don't think, or in a in a post scarcity world. Well, we kind of <laughs> did because we talked about the U, what happens for the UBI, yeah, right? Because if right, UBI yeah, yeah. post scarcity, people have to find something else to do. Right. So we covered that. Okay. Well, We're so good. so let's move on to the next argument then. Uh, and we we did kind of touch on this, but I think there's a little bit more we can say. And and so the, the argument is just that, like, look, uh, and as we said, for a lot of people, work is the primary source of social interaction and and for many people the basis of their social circle and even if work is isolating let's say compared to religion or if it doesn't fulfill the same kind of function 
not working is even worse. <laughs> right? if, if you don't have employment, then there's a real threat of isolation. And this compounds with the sort of purposelessness, meaninglessness of life. And then you have, you know, potentially serious depression and, and worse. So thoughts on this argument. <laughs> I mean, we, co- we covered a lot of it already. So, you know, obviously we're going to say get something right. But we will also say, look, there are many other ways to achieve this. And also, you know, in the context of UBI, it doesn't get rid of work, but employment. Right. So one of the, the things to point out about the version of the argument that, that we're currently considering is that you're basically, and actually this came up a lot in our discussion of the sort of meaning and purpose argument. When we talked about things that you lose out on when you move away from uh, compelled work is some interaction and social life, right? It's the opportunity to be, to participate in society and culture, right? And the ways in which work provides an avenue for that. But, and I think we've talked about that stuff uh, enough to sort of explain how you can get around those problems. There's another dimension to this though, that's social, which is the ways in which our social capital, and we talked about this a little bit too, though I don't know that we talked about how we would provide an alternative to this in a sort of post-work or post-employment world. So people don't just seek interaction from their jobs, but they also seek sort of social prestige, right? Social capital through their work as well. It's one of the primary ways in which people are able to achieve, like to accomplish things, to develop a sense of accomplishment, and I think all of those are sort of deeply interrelated. The degree to which people have obtained social capital, a sense of self-worth, all of that. How do they attain? So then the, one of the questions I think worth considering is how do we obtain those things in the context of a post-work or post-employment society? Honestly, my <laughs> just, just change the work to change the basic values of the culture so that people don't <laughs> need to feel important in that way so that they don't need to yeah derive value from status in that way i mean that's I, that's where my but you know probably an outlier on this but that that's where my intuitions lie and again it's making me think of the um the value system on anares from of odo from the the book the dispossessed by Ursula <laughs> like Le Guin, right how did they solve that well a very very strong social investment and communitarianism and not needing to have oneself recognized as somebody special. Right. Right. So just sort of, that's one way around it. Uh, But obviously that's like (laughs) several generations of investment and (laughs) social change. I think that's probably, yeah, I think that's probably right, but I think it's at least worth raising the question so that people realize that there's this massive cultural shift that would have to occur. In in order for people to be okay living in such a society. Why you need non-employment means for people to achieve that kind of status. So my conjecture yeah. is this. Social capital and social hierarchy will probably always pervade human societies. Uh, I don't think that getting rid of employment would get rid of that. What it would do is invite new ways to draw those distinctions. I mean, think, think just to take an example that I'm familiar with, think academia for a second. You know, an easy way to, to mark where you stand relative to other people is to 
to think about how much you make. And there's a certain prestige that comes with that. But there's also prestige that's can be independent of that, right? So, you know, in academia, it'll be like what journals you publish in or, you know, what school is your employer, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's endless numbers of ways that we can feel better or worse <laughs> or inferior than other people. You know, if everyone in the future, there's no employment and all they can do is cook and garden, then you better believe there will be a huge uptick in gardening <laughs> competitions mm-hmm. and cooking competitions, you know, cat shows. <laughs> well, so something else I'm thinking about is uh, not that, um, though obviously that is a thing. <laughs> you also got me thinking about bingo halls and lawn bowls in a whole new way. Lawn balls makes us triumphant return to the Badlands. I remember well, no, because they're things that retired people often do, right? They yeah. participate in these kinds of non-very strenuous but competitive social activities. Though it's weird to get an ego about bingo, right? <laughs> Given that it's entirely luck-based. <laughs> well, no, not, not true, right? You have to pay attention. You don't want to miss a number. But then also the speed at which you call out bingo. This is true. Yeah, you got it. It's, it's just that. I'm not intimately familiar with the rules of bingo, and that could be the difference between winning and losing is how quickly you can make the call. So I'm actually yeah. not sure if that's I, yeah, like, no, a, I have no idea. like if there's a single winner. That might be. There can be multiple. I don't know. No, see, I'm thinking about bingo at high school, and if you were really seriously in a bingo competition, those kinds of you know they might not allow to be multiple winners. But this is a distraction from the main point, which yeah. was fuck. I think I forgot. <laughs> Competition. Uh, Competition. Oh, right. Influencers. Ah, influencers. Yeah, right. So, you know, um, being popular Mm. is is something that people can be invested in, even if it doesn't necessarily make them very much money. Now, in the current system, of course, influencers, so people who are significant social media celebrities in one way or another, do get paid um, because they get massive amounts of advertising revenue. But it also has me thinking about Twitch streamers, actually. So people who stream video games for a living are often incredibly apologetic about complaining about any aspect of their job. They're often at pains to constantly thank everybody for giving them the opportunity to have this be their work. So I don't know. That's kind of a weird case where it's sort of like they kind of feel like they're getting away with something. Like it's not work work (laughs) that they're doing, Uh um, but they're incredibly fortunate to be able to subsist this way. But I mean, that's weird because people who stream often provide massive social benefits to their community, right? Like you just have to read the number of subscription notifications that are like, man, you've really gotten me through some hard times in life by just like reliably being there playing video games. And also like better entertainment than TV can uh, provide in many cases. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's weird. It's, I don't know how to think about the social life aspect of that, right? Cause there's sort of being popular is kind of the, they're almost being paid for having a social status, right? They're being paid for having that. But but the other thing you point to is that being popular is its own good and something you can pursue independent of money, compensation or financial incentive. And and it would be surprising if that went away, (laughs) right? That sort of basic human drive to be popular. And who knows how how that quest could manifest itself, right? Hey, you know, maybe it'll be about like, Maybe this is dystopian, maybe it's not, but, you know, there could be, like, a, a sort of implicit competition about, you know, who can do the most good. 
<laughs> Maybe. I mean, this That's is the where... lamest feature anyone's <laughs> but, ever. No, I mean, out. but this is where we're starting to get back to these questions about human nature, which have sort of underlined some of the some of the earlier arguments about survival and enhancement or meaning and purpose or something. Right? There's something about humans which means that mm-hmm. they need to have work for one reason or another. So, I mean, the social capital kind of claim is a different sort of a claim. There's something about humans that means that they will always try to improve their social status in some way or another. Um, you're abnormal for not caring about that kind of stuff. See every yeah. high school film ever made, <laughs> you know. So I, I don't know, that's hard. One of the things that makes the science fiction, like the dispossessed, kind of fictional for a lot of people is that you could have a society where everybody is genuinely, sincerely committed to communitarian kinds of values, such that they're not interested in establishing personal prestige through things like work or through the kind of research that they develop or through, you know, whatever their... Cat competitions. Right. On the other hand, it actually, just from a, you know, like common sense view of human psychology, it also actually makes a lot of sense in those contexts where so much dehumanization occur as justified on the grounds of people lacking certain kinds of social capital and social prestige, right? Like that people, people would be, it makes sense. And it's adaptive in the current context to be obsessive about that to a large extent, because your basic welfare depends on how you're perceived. And if you remove that from the equation, then human nature likely could, would be significantly different. Well, I mean, in discussions of, uh, I don't know, just take like testimony, (laughs) trusting what other people say. One of the assumptions there is kind of predicated on the fact that we're a social species that needs to cooperate in order to live successfully as groups. One of the things that social capital, discussions of social capital are about is the prestige that comes with being somebody who's trustworthy or being somebody who's reliable or things like that. One of the things that's weird about employment as social capital is that employment and the amount of money that you earn isn't a very good proxy for any socially valuable characteristic at all. Nah, that's a bad <laughs> proxy, man. Um, so I don't know. Maybe if we do swap out and social life is the argument that we – like social life is the the value that's underpinning work once we recognize – I don't know if we say, well, look, Social capital is justified when it maximizes certain kinds of social benefits or when it has some sort of strong connection to those kinds of benefits. Employment doesn't do that necessarily, right? There's no strong connection there. Then either reshape the work or be okay with the employment going and just find ways that people can actually contribute in meaningful ways. Okay, so so one reply was like, so so Michael's concern, just another way to put it, I'm just recapping mm-hmm. here, is that uh, people care a lot about social hierarchy obtaining social capital and prestige. Um, and that's very intimately tied to work currently. One response is like that basic practice and the need for social hierarchy is bad. <laughs> and so maybe perhaps ideally we do away with it altogether, but then another concern is like, okay, fine, but that's not easy. Right. Um, certainly not with our current stock of people. And then I, I think it's a reasonable response to say that even if there isn't lots of employment, I would be very shocked, right, if this kind of practice went away. I'm sure people will find ways to um, accumulate social capital and feel good about themselves um, (laughs) at the expense of others. And then there was another thing. So the second path is that you don't do away with the drive. You sort of embrace the drive, but you redirect it towards 
Oh, or, or rather, as as a concern about UBI, it, it probably will naturally just get redirected, yeah. right? It would take a massive effort to sort of stop this practice altogether. But I think third is that even if it is redirected, there's reason to be somewhat optimistic because the currently the particularly harmful effects of the way in which social capital is used would be undermined or eliminated in a world where people's livelihoods and and overall well-being don't depend as much on the social capital that they possess that they possess and that's an interesting point and it gets to a pet peeve of mine which i won't dwell on but i'll just note and hannah sort of pointed to as well is that no one should be confident about human nature claims i i think richard rorty is right here to say that the thing we know about humans is that they're massively malleable right and often when we're trying to make these judgments about human nature we're considering it within a very particular cultural and economic and whatever else context. And it's hard to know how what humans would be like in, in sort of radically different kinds of contexts. I just want to, you know, urge caution oh, sure. and agnosticism with respect to some kind of fixed human nature. Um, and then again, just to re- reiterate what we were saying previously, if it's just a matter of like having social interaction, there's lots of other ways to do that, right? You might expect that if, there's widespread unemployment and people don't need to work. There's probably going to be a lot more clubs, bingo clubs, cat show clubs. <laughs> uh, that's all I can think of right now, right? Um, people will, if they have this drive and they want to be social, and there are still plenty of things to do, they'll find things to do with each other. Now, again, it, it might be helpful to have sort of public agencies which fil- facilitate that, especially early on if people are you know, becoming isolated and, and so on. But but that's easily replaced, I think. And and again, just to bring it back to like, you know, does this uh, argument justify the current system in which people are basically compelled to work? Well, that would be pretty bizarre. <laughs> uh, we're going to basically force you to work because if you don't, you're going to be miserable because you'll be by yourself too much. So, I well, mean, you'll you'll lose a convenient avenue for accruing social capital. Right. This is the, the ultimate paternalism. <laughs> this is like. <laughs> What you would expect from parents. (laughs) Okay, shall we move on to the next one? Well, I think it leads us to the merit arguments. Okay. Right. Well, so one of the responses that I sketched for that social capital justification for work is that, okay, but, you know, if we're talking about why social capital is a good thing to be invested in, then intuitively a way to argue for that is people are deserving of certain kinds of social status because of the ways that they contribute to society. And so this leads very naturally to the idea of merit, where people are deserving of access to goods and resources and money, right, wages, because their jobs accrue them certain kinds of merit and they deserve compensation for that. Um, so, you know, in a society that is a meritocracy, uh, perhaps, if there are any of those. No, we, we um, refuted that in uh, episode yeah. whatever it was. Well, look, lots of people still believe and lots of people think about working this way. Right? Lots of people need to listen to this podcast. Well, <laughs> we're working on it. Works a way to earn merit. Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to flag that this is a kind of a fundamentally different kind of argument from the ones that we've seen so far. 
kind of. So, so the first argument, survival and enhancement, was about promoting the social good. So it was a sort of society-level benefit to well-being. Meaning and purpose and social life were more about psychological benefits to workers. This is more about a moral benefit to workers, if you will. And benefit sort of a weird way to, to put it, but sort of the accruing of a moral good to workers, right? You might think it's better to be meritorious than not. It's better to be deserving of stuff than not. And work is a way to accrue merit, this kind of moral good. And then you might also think about it as useful in deciding what our basic institutions are like, which determine the distribution of resources, sort of at least as a guide for those things. So what do we think about this? Well, I I do just want to quickly say in the episode on meritocracy, we considered the idea that hard work or work is an indicator of merit. And it's, it's not a great proxy for that for a couple of reasons. First, you can work hard at something and be terrible at it, and so produce nothing. The example in the earlier episode was Michael and I trying to become Olympic <laughs> gymnasts, in case, in case anyone forgot about that. Second, you can work very hard at something that is useless. Like You could work very hard to count the number of blades of grass you know, in your yard or in a field or something, but it's pretty useless work, and we don't think it's deserving of much. And then finally, your work can be harmful, and it would it would be better if you have harmful work to work less hard at that work, <laughs> um, so that you start harming people so you stop harming people so much. We kind of talked about this previously, so it's not a perfect indicator of merit, but at least you know you might say that work that is socially valuable at the very least is a way to accrue merit, and so that might be a reason why at least that kind of work is valuable. Just want to get all those caveats out of the way to start with. So, what do we think about this? I mean, I think we kind of, just given the ways that certain kinds of social institutions are set up, we seem to endorse this way of thinking, whether or not we're intentionally doing so. You just have to think about welfare benefits. Kamala Harris's um, tax cut proposal. (laughs) Right. You only get it if you work. Right. (laughs) Well, you only get benefits if you're working towards working, employment rather, working towards employment. Or people who are only on benefits and have opted out of employment. I mean, that's not an acceptable choice. And people ought to be denied things like access to educational opportunities or access to uh, certain kinds of tax breaks or access to other kinds of social services. Because if you're not contributing in the right kinds of ways, you're not accruing merit and that determines what you deserve and what society is obligated to give you. So and we do, in a lot of ways, endorse something like this at some level. Um, so at least insofar as the argument is descriptively correct, <laughs> mm-hmm. it gets something right. Whether or not we ought to be thinking about it that way, for all the kinds of reasons you just sketched out, right? Um, there, there are many objections to, well, I mean, there are many objections to the d- descriptive. It's descriptively accurate yeah. of how we think about it. It's not descriptively accurate of the system. Yeah, um, yeah. But so, yeah, this is, this is really tough because... On the one hand, like all of those, the descriptive accuracy, I think generally people wouldn't actually appeal to the argument that Toby laid out as justification for the practice. They would likely appeal to the earlier arguments that we've given about the ways in which rewarding people based on their merits incentivizes socially productive behavior. And the argument as Toby laid it out was that having merit is a moral good that is actually, it's good for the worker 
insofar as they've obtained a moral good. And I actually think it's that position might get something. There's something that it gets right, even on that framing. Like, it's good that people accomplish things, right? And that people are accomplished in various ways. And sometimes I think that's true, even when people aren't doing anything that is uh, really socially beneficial. Like, I genuinely think people who do speed runs at, like, Dark Souls, um, even if they're not, like, Twitch streaming it and there's no social benefit to it, there's something intrinsically good about having done that. Uh, <laughs> intrinsically good. I think so. Shit. Um, All right. Interesting. So, so like, there might be, there's, there's something right about having accomplishment as being something that is actually good for workers, right? And so there's something that work, there are ways in which people doing work and having, having jobs does provide them with some, a moral good that is actually in some ways good for them. So there's like something, there, there is something intuitively right, it seems to me, about the argument. Just like with all of the other arguments, the, there's an obvious reply, which is, okay, but you don't need employment to obtain that good. You might need work. Yes. You don't need yes. employment. So in the context of universal basic income, you can say, yeah, um, people can still work even if they don't have employment, and so they can still accrue merit. Now, how that connects up to distribution of resources is another question, and whether those things should be tied together is a different question. And I, and I do just want to just to piggyback on what you were saying. When we were talking about meritocracy, we did say, like, you know, for progressives, there is a pretty strong meritocratic impulse insofar as we do criticize economic institutions on the grounds that they're not meritocratic enough in certain ways. We don't think a, a pure meritocracy is a, a good idea because we think there should be at least adequate baselines so that no one's living in poverty. Um, but we kind of do think it's problem problematic, although maybe it only is because there are people who are living in poverty, but it's problematic that, you know, someone can inherit a ton of wealth and be fabulously wealthy without doing anything at all, given that other people are working hard and getting nothing. I, I was going to raise the question of whether or not, like taking the, the reading of the argument as you presented it, where it's actually a moral good that is bestowed upon the worker when they achieve merit in some way. Is it even the case? I mean, it, whether it's the case that even work is required for that, I think depends very much on how we draw the lines between work and leisure, right? So like just the Dark Souls speed run example, um, is that work or is that <laughs> leisure? That It's not work work unless they're a streamer. <laughs> no, I mean, this is, a, this is a really difficult thing, right? And I was, when I was trying to think about what is work, I was trying to think about different kinds of categories. And so like some basic ones are like, Work, leisure, rest, play. You, employment's a separate thing. And like trying to draw a sharp line between those things is very, very, very difficult. And I don't think it's probably not really worthwhile, but it is really tough, right? So in the speedrun case, I mean, that to me, that's very similar to like mastering uh, professional sports players. Sure, or mastering a different, the difficult piece yep. of music, right? Even if you do that for a hobby. It's not work work. <laughs> Honestly, that's one of the more useful terms we've come up with here. <laughs> work work. Um, well, wo I think work work, work and employment are useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Employment and work work. They're very close. They're very close. Yeah. And uh, employment, this as an aside, 
as we also noted, doesn't have to include much work. It could be something, uh, a job where you do nothing. Well, no, so that's where you would start having people compete about, yeah, but my employment is like work, work, and your employment is sitting at a desk watching some doors. <laughs> right. Right. So there, there's a case where they might come apart. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, this is where the, I mean, is the distinction that important? If you master an incredibly different, difficult piece of music, you've achieved something very difficult. You know, that's a, a marker of merit. Uh, you had to spend many hours and exert lots of energy into this. If we want to call that leisure and not work, is it because we are tacitly thinking of work as something which you are kind of compelled into doing, but but not not a hobby? I don't know. And I'm thinking about, so, you know, professional athletes are often apologetic in a similar way to the video game streamers, as I mentioned. And they're always, they're often also incredibly thankful pu publicly always that they have the opportunity to have this kind of career. Very often to God, at least in America. <laughs> right. Very religious. It's the first thing I'll say. <laughs> um, but, you know, part of the debate around professional sports players' salaries is that they're not, they're disproportionate to what they produce or what they deserve given their job as training and playing sports and there were responses to that right no they bring joy to everybody who watches it so it's incredibly valuable they produce a whole lot of good that way they deserve that um, but that's one of those cases that is certainly hard <laughs> does accrue a lot of social benefit to people who watch sports but we still have this anxiety about actually recognizing it as work as merit in the right kind, in the work, work way. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's certainly meritorious in the like physical excellence kind of way. Um, but we don't, I don't know. I, I don't have that concern, but maybe it's because I. You're a huge sports <laughs> I, fan. But not just that I'm a huge <laughs> sports fan, because I think there are sports fans who would say the same thing. Right. I mean, like a common thing sports fans will say is like, oh, you can't complain. You make millions of dollars. So right. you can't complain about anything about your job, which. You know, as we've talked about before, is comical in the context of, say, a football player who's who knows how many years of their life, uh, how many years of their life they're giving up to do this thing. I think in most cases, people just underestimate the amount of entertainment value that sports provide, because right. they wouldn't say the same thing about, say, a movie that's created. And a movie that's created, even if it's a good movie, provides you know for a short period of time for most people a, a good amount of entertainment, uh, and then it fizzles out. Man, sports keeps on rolling. <laughs> it's a never-ending movie, never-ending drama. And I think that, yeah, and they also underestimate all the other sort of influences that sports have, right? So, like, I, I was thinking in response to Hannah's observation about, like, the recognition of, of the contribution of athletes. We don't, I think you're right that we don't recognize them as having, like, made work contributions in the way that, like, we do with medical professionals and other kinds of professionals. But at the same time, we do, I think, put athletes up on a pedestal and they're like primary role models for a lot of communities and they have all this really important social and cultural influence that uh, and, and with that comes a lot of social prestige, even if it we don't characterize it as work. So they were they yeah I think I do just I just I just want to note that that part I think is strange. <laughs> like the 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 idolizing of athletes to me is very strange. 
but that's a separate thing. Well, that's just a human heroes kind of thing. That's yeah, got long that's the people who are tradition. on TV are uh, wonderful, <laughs> magical. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting case, though, because it's a case where it's like, and I think people will explicitly say this, right? Even the, the athletes and the coaches will say this, right? We're very lucky because we're playing a children's game for a living. So it's that they get to do what we typically think of as play for work, where play isn't a punishment, right? Play is not something you're compelled into doing. Uh, you might exert, exert yourself, but you enjoy it, and that's a nice thing. Now, does competition at that level have the same sort of play qualities for a lot of these athletes? For most of them, maybe a little, but it's certainly not the same. Well, I mean, to take the Twitch streamers case, a yeah. lot of them describe... They have the games they play for work, work. <laughs> and then they have downtime where they still play other games off stream. So I mean, they draw a distinction between sort of playing for fun and playing for work. Um, at least some of them sort of work-life balance and that population is not yeah. particularly great. But um, that is a distinction that can be drawn. And it might be the same for athletes too, right? They might still be playing, you know, pickup games on the weekend where that's a different way of playing where it's just play. It's not... Yeah. Do you think the difference is just the like level of excellence that they expect for themselves in that domain? Like I, I can imagine with like the honestly, I think it's because they're not being watched. Hmm. It depends, right? I mean, like so you you get basketball players of both sorts. For instance, some of them are like, when I'm done playing basketball, I'm not going to touch a basketball again. Steve Nash, JJ Redick, or of that type. Then you have the Jamal Crawford types who are like, I'm going to play until I die. Right. <laughs> in his spare time, he just plays. <laughs> So it might be how they approach it, right? Do they do they approach it more like a job or do they approach it more like a fun thing? And of course, there's going to be blurry lines between those. And the do what you love yeah. mantra is going to play in weirdly, psychologically yeah. in a lot of these cases as well. Okay, well, so so one of the difficult cases will be like, what do we make of this argument in the post-scarcity world of abundance at minimum, it'll be seem weird maybe to tie merit to being deserving of resources. Or, or maybe we'll just say, like, well, the people who do contribute more, they're more deserving of it, and that's cool, good for them. That's not going to keep us from giving resources to everyone who needs them. <laughs> I mean, especially given that UBI is often premised on sort of human rights-based arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of UBI establishes a minimum standard of what people deserve. Right. Yeah. Or, or yeah, or just sort of owed at, at base. And then of course there's just questions about how to distribute resources beyond that level. Though if we're really in a world of abundance, UBI could be much more substantial than that. Like what would be the point of keeping people at a sort of fairly low standard of living when there's so many resources to go around that no one would have to sacrifice to provide even more for those people? Like, would, would there be, is there good reason to think of work and merit in that way anymore? No. I'd say fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, so maybe this leads us into the next argument, which is like, okay. Uh, and I don't want to say that we, we're done talking about merit, but maybe we can sort of, you know, just jump around here. Well, if you do that, if you're willing, and, and you know, if there's so many resources to go around that you're willing to provide for like a really nice standard of living for everyone, then you might still be concerned that like, well, isn't that just going to make people lazy? And isn't that bad? Isn't that bad even if we don't need people to work, right? So laziness right now, you might say, is bad in part because like, 
if people don't work hard, we won't have enough to go around for everyone. But in the future, that might not need to be the case. But you could still say, nevertheless, it's better to be the kind of person who's diligent than to be the kind of person who is slothful. It's a matter of personal virtue, right? Regardless of how much you contribute by your work, it's better if you're a hardworking kind of person than to be one who is not. So, I mean, one, one question is, like, is, is being hardworking a virtue? I don't know. Uh, in part because what are we attaching to the working part of that? <laughs> um, so are we, are we willing to recognize Twitch streamers who are incredibly hardworking, who might put in 10-hour days, six days a week, which is not an exaggeration, right? So incredibly dedicated, very hardworking, um, as virtuous. And, and being familiar with sort of virtue and vice uh, morally and epistemically as well, which sort of comes up, often people who are committed to virtue and vice ways of thinking about things also take uh, indulgence to be a significant category, such that there are certain things that it is inappropriate to pursue, even if you would be very hardworking in pursuit of that thing. Mm. So they often tend to come together. Um, so like a professional hot dog eater. Right. Yeah. Being a professional <laughs> food eater, not the kind of thing that one should try to excel at. While you might be very hardworking in pursuit of it, there are um, proper targets of the virtuous person's action. So okay, that's that, interesting. that can complicate this discussion about, because it's not, you know, when, when people talk about the virtuous or the, the sage, usually it's the right kinds of actions towards the right kinds of object with the right kinds of intention. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's the virtuous thing not to be courageous or honest. Because the virtuous person wouldn't be courageous or honest right now. It's not courageous or honest at all costs. So the same thing could come up for hardworking. And where that might shift is what you're being hardworking at. <laughs> okay, good. So so being hardworking, we might say, isn't going to be a virtue In all no cases. matter what. Right. Uh, so it'll depend on the kinds of work you're doing. But now, so let's take a kind of work that we can say is good in however way we want to think of that. I think then we still have this question. Is being hardworking a virtue? I mean, look, if I'm going to take like a, a flat-footed Aristotelian approach, I might say, no, being someone who works the appropriate amount of hours is what's virtuous, right? Aristotle, for those who don't know, is the sort of classic virtue uh, at the mean person. So there's extremes. There's doing no work, there's being slothful. Then there's being overworking, which might be more in the ballpark of hardworking. And then there's doing things to the, you know, the mean person appropriate amount sort of a line with an excess on one end and a deficiency on the other and the virtue falls in the middle between an excess and a deficiency that is a much better way of saying what that's, i just that's said. the general the general I'm structure sorry. i don't do virtue theory <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry that's fine but yeah a, a means-based approach to virtue and vice and vice is both ends of that scale so it's a vice to have whatever the trait is in excess, and it's a vice to have whatever the trait is in deficiency, generally speaking. So like courage is the mean between cowardice and recklessness, Yes, for instance. Do we have a term, though, for overworking? Well, so the proposal is that hardworking is the virtue. Right. Right? So not working at all is the deficiency. And then at some level, it's, it's, it's an excess. I don't know. Well, part, <laughs> part of it is that for s certain things there it's like we don't really recognize there to be an excess category 
right? And it's part of why intuitively right. initially it makes sense to ask, is that the virtue? Because we're, we fail to have terminology that identifies that category as being excessive, which is, I think is just reflective of underlying values that we don't. Right, exactly, right? Our, our language is like that in part because of how we think about work as being the thing you should perhaps always be right. pursuing as that is a possibility. Yeah. Like, I can't think of any, any easy term or phrase that would characterize that. Well, so what makes it quite hard as well is if being really productive and being really hardworking, like the do what you love sort of perspective bleeds over into all other areas of life as well. So your leisure activities should be things like, extreme hiking and <laughs> making all your food from scratch and right like you're meant to be productive in all areas of life you're meant to maximize all areas of life and that's really hard to put on a meme because how do you access maximizing all available opportunities right. yeah, how do you mean like that? you can't yeah. that's just what it is yep. hence criticism of that approach to life uh you're demanding too much from people all the time which requires us to try to find a meme. You know, in the earlier discussion about the sort of Silicon Valley personality type and the kind of academic personality type, uh, where these are two areas where you're just sort of expected to be hardworking always, driven always, productive always. Those are, and it's the same for elite athletes as well. They're meant to always be orienting their life around maximizing their employment. Yeah. It's now these days, which wasn't in the past, I don't think, in the same way, it's now viewed as like a great failure of an athlete if they don't come if they don't come back from their sort of off season break in like the best shape of their lives. Right. <laughs> there's another way to there's like a more deflationary way to think about virtues where rather than like mm -hmm. thinking of them as qualities that are in sort of like intrinsically good for a person to exemplify there there's a way of thinking about it where they're the kind of characteristics that tend to make people happy overall. And like, I, I was thinking about this in, in large part because the, the question of how will employment impact people's overall happiness has been like at the forefront of my mind is in thinking about this. And I was thinking about Martin Seligman's work on in positive psychology on the various kinds of personality types that, provide different ways for people to pursue and achieve happiness, right? And and in his early work, he characterizes sort of three different person, categorizes three different personality types that tend to achieve happiness in different ways. And of course, we all possess these traits to varying degrees. But one of them is people whose primary means to achieving happiness is doing so by achieving like a flow state, right? Or a state of where they're engrossed in the work that they do, right? And and part of like thinking it's good for people to be hardworking, I think, is thinking that if people are are do have this kind of psychological disposition to really sort of become engrossed in their work, that there's a certain kind of contentment that is available to people through that state. And so, and this sort of deflationary way of thinking about being hardworking as a virtue is that it's a it's a kind of psychological disposition that allows for one to achieve contentment in that way. I, I can kind of see the the merit to the to the argument that society has a significant impact. The way we encourage people to sort of get 
you know, obsessed in and, and lost in projects can actually be beneficial, particularly for certain personality types. And then there's the question of whether or not that kind of virtue and the, the kind of happiness that Seligman ascribes to the, the person who obtains it from a flow state, will that still be easily accessible and something that is cultivated in a post-employment society? One of the other issues that comes up there is, and this is part of the criticism of Steve Jobs, sort of as an influencer himself, <laughs> making it the case that being somebody who probably does have that flow state style personality, setting that as the standard yep. for everybody to meet, right? Yep. Um, so even if that's the case, what that research would show us is that there are multiple ways <laughs> that um, people's personalities or people's employment and their personalities can sort of be in tune together so that there's sort of, I don't know, the virtue attaches to what makes them most content. Part of the problem, perhaps at the moment, is the assumption that the same thing works for everybody and that there is one standard for everybody, which is certainly what the means deficiency excess model um, typically kind of promotes, right? There's what the sage would do now. <laughs> we had the sages, what everybody right. Should, right. should do. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, we, we've kind of gestured at, you know, some things. I, I, I don't think there will be a shortage of things for, for people who are seeking a flow state to to attain that state. Again, there's, as we've sort of said, there's going to be all manner of kinds of work available. And it, certainly you can do this by pursuing hobbies, depending on how the hell we want to split up work from hobbies. But again, learn an instrument, right? Uh, learn how to play some difficult piece of music that will do the same thing for you. Play video games <laughs> that will do the same kind of thing for you. You know, again, there's all kinds of things you can do. One thing I, I guess I do want to comment on is another way virtue is often thought of is not necessarily in terms of like happiness and, and contentment, but in terms of flourishing or, or a life well lived, right? And in an exemplary life, someone who is virtuous is someone who lives an exemplary life. And in the context of work, just to getting, getting back to the issue of whether being hardworking is a virtue or not, I think it's revealing the kinds of people that are held up as leading exemplary lives, perhaps ideals for people to uh, aspire to. And these are people who have accomplished the most difficult things, right, through incredible amounts of hard work. I think we don't often hold up the person who's like, this person lived a very balanced life. <laughs> right. and, and they're the they're the person that we should uh, model our own lives after. Although I think it, it's tough, right? Because I think people often, they, they look at the genius, the Einstein or whoever. Right. That's what I was going to bring in, right? It's only certain kinds of exceptional people. So the, the mother who successfully home raised seven kids or something. Yeah. That's not the, right, right. the role model. Yeah. It's Steve Jobs. <laughs> that, that's certainly uh, right. Um, but the other thing too is like, I, I don't think that, or even the professional athlete, right? That's another kind of person who's held up in the same way. I don't think people realize the amount of what, what it takes to do that. And I think if they were yeah. to try to live their life in a way that would make that possible, I think they would say, this is stupid. And the <laughs> only reason why the person was able to do that was because they were highly obsessed with it. Right, and if you don't have that incredible drive and, and obsession, in addition to probably a good deal of talent, social support as well, and and of course, that's a horrible way to live for most people. 
So one thing I, I was I, I thought of when you were pointing out that we typically um, look at people who have worked excessively hard as sort of the models that people should aspire to. There's there is an irony that the social influencers are the exact opposite of those people, and in some ways provide a counter model. <laughs> um, but they're primarily they're primarily celebrated for the degree to which they live a life of leisure and not work. So what's interesting, and so so I've been watching various documentaries about influencers over the past few months, right? Because there's been there's sort of been a flurry of this. <laughs> of documentaries of that sort. And there are cases, and it's sort of weird, where people, where it's kind of like this, the social status that would be given to an inventor who had an invention, right? They capitalized on an idea. Yep. So they were the person that realized that there was a niche here that could be exploited. Hey, I didn't really have to do anything, but just post something of a particular style repeatedly. Uh, and it turns out that was really appealing for a lot of people. But that's enough for a lot of people to feel like, no, they deserve that, you know. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> they, they came up with how, that thing. how people think thing. of, yeah, of business in particular. <laughs> it's like if you won something through business, well, you deserved it. It was a smart move. It was a smart business move. It's like, you know, what if what if they did it by not working hard or something? Well, that was smart, so they earned it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the whole, you know, people who find out tax loopholes and stuff. Oh, they're so smart. <laughs> Yeah, they know the rules of the system. They're finding the gaps, right? Yeah, it's like a weird <laughs> counterexample to the the typical kind of meritocracy, hard work kind of view. Yeah, it's like you only deserve something if you work hard, unless you've done it through business, in which case all bets are off. Be sneaky. <laughs> be sneaky. <laughs> Just be sneaky. Yeah. So I guess we don't know. We, we don't know whether I, I, you know, I guess my <clears throat> tentative proposal would be that being hardworking by today's standards is an excess and a vice, perhaps insofar as it conflicts with a healthy psychology and, and probably therefore other things that are more obviously virtues. But you might still think that the mean is a, is a good deal of or It's not work. laziness. <laughs> it's not laziness. <laughs> yeah. Does that change in a world where if we're living in a world of abundance where work just isn't necessary? I don't know. It depends how strong your like liberal value of autonomy is. <laughs> Let people do what they want. I mean, and if some people just don't want to be really hardworking and there's no <laughs> social need for them to be really hardworking, then fine. But, but, are, but are they viceful in that case? So I do yeah. think there's a reasonable worry, right? I think it's reasonable to worry that our educational institutions and other institutions are currently uh, designed to cultivate a hardworking sort of disposition, right? And I think it's reasonable to think that to s the mean probably is actually good for a lot of people, if not everybody. And so I think it's at least reasonable to worry that if we don't plan to adjust our institutions that like if our institutions just kind of are, are shaped to the material needs that people have, that they won't be incentivized to, to try to cultivate those kinds of psychological dispositions. I think it's reasonable to think that it's at least something we need to plan for in a sort of post scarcity world. I think there are obviously solutions, 
right? I think there's no reason why our educational institutions can't find these other like venues for people to aspire to excellence in that are independent of employment. But it, I mean, I, I think it's one of those things that if you don't worry about it, you might end up in a bad state, but there clearly are. Wally. <laughs> you do end yeah, up in the Wally exactly. world. You end up in the Wally world. <laughs> Where, I mean, and this is like, this is a related, but very similar concern, which is the moral issue of virtue and vice aside. There are psychological and physical consequences to laziness, which are bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so work might be a way to stay fit both mentally and physically and you you would worry in a world world where people don't need to work whether they'll just instead uh overconsume and, and lose all of the psychological and physical benefits that they might get from work and and the fact is that we when left to people's own devices when there aren't external pressures and and things to shape them like if you take that full sort of liberal you know attitude of like ah just let people make independent choices it's quite possible that people will end up making choices that are not healthy for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, we, we may want to be somewhat, we may need to be a liberal and provide external pressures to get people to do things that are good for them that they're not naturally inclined to do. And we do this by exactly. the way already, right? With respect to like cigarettes, banning them in certain places or making it difficult or impossible to purchase huge, uh, Big gulps or something. <laughs> uh, what? Big gulps. <laughs> giant. Wait, what you would call giant uh, cups of fizzy. Oh, right. Fizzy. <laughs> right. What the hell is a big gulp? Is it a lollipop? Is it an no. energy drink? No, it's when you go, to a, a, you go to a gas station a fizzy drink. and there's a bucket and they hand you a bucket and then you go over to the soda machine and you fill that bucket. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, nudging is the, the term, um, where it might not be outright paternalism. You're not making people's choices for them. A nudge is meant to be sort of a, a liberal paternalism. Right. Where you're just kind of, you're not limiting people's choices for action, but you're making certain choices more appealing. So you're trying to cause people to buy the salad rather than the fries to not smoke, <laughs> to walk up the stairs rather than taking the elevator, right? Those are all little nudges to change your behavior without actually forcing you to do so. Um, but, but sort of as you suggested, Michael, right, this is a case where with a sort of proper educational system aimed at helping students live a good human life in all of its generality and instilling good values that are conducive to living a good human life that could be avoided right independent like you, you you could approach it that way instead of compelling people to work because they can't be trusted right. uh to keep themselves busy otherwise um as always right it, it, it's i mean the upshot here is and maybe we should just sort of move into these sort of big questions about all of this but one of the takeaways i see is that it's really really difficult to justify compelling work having a system which compels people to work. I have to think that the strongest argument in favor of it is like in the case where it's necessary for survival of the community. Even that is interesting and at least sort of illiberal. But even then, like if if that's the, the sort of baseline, that would suggest that probably we don't need to work all that much, not nearly as much as we do, right? 
I don't know. I, that's just one of the things that's, that struck me about this. None of these arguments, right, even if they do demonstrate that work is value, first of all, it's very rarely a unique provider of that value, right? There's always other ways to get these things. Um, certainly employment, that, that goes for doubly. But it's another thing altogether to say that because it is valuable in this way, you must do it. <laughs> I'm just looking at the list and trying to see if any of them stand out to me as the strongest argument of the ones we've looked at. I mean, and I guess another thing too is like, so that kind of bears on how much we should work we should do in the question about compulsion. But one thing we haven't talked about is like the distribution of work. Who should do what kinds of work, right? None of these arguments say much about that none of them could justify the current kind of situation where like it's just a function of how much wealth you happen to have yeah that largely opens doors to certain kinds of job or career paths and the fact that we call some things jobs and some things careers gives you an indication of the kind of social capital that we attach to different sorts of professions yep. and it's you know contingent social factors that like sort of set you up <laughs> to be able to pursue a career or to only get jobs, you know, the kind of de facto, I mean, think about, so think about the merit argument and think about the book meritocracy, right? So like the, the satirical novel where this concept, sort of the genesis of it, the thought there is that people have certain kinds of natural intellectual and physical abilities, and we should set society up in such a way as to maximize that. So there are certain people who naturally will not really progress beyond a high school level. So they simply just don't have that choice anymore. There are other people who are geniuses of one stripe or another. So we, you know, they have to go all the way through school and then contribute in that way. So if that, I mean, if that's the way you think about the world, then it's very obvious who should do the work because uh, the people should do the work that they're capable of doing. And there's natural dispositions and capabilities across the population and so you know that's that's what you do certain kinds of people just don't get the choice to try because you know they'll fail <laughs> i mean in some ways that i mean right it's, a, it's an objectionable limitation on autonomy but it's almost worse now right because first of all the sense in which a lot of people get to try is only a token sense of trying and they don't really have a chance as we talked about when we talked about access to opportunity. There's that. And then there's the fact that there are plenty of jobs, which any, everyone is like perfectly able to do, but the work sucks. And that is forced upon a certain set of people who also don't have the access to, to opportunity. When in principle, like the, the crappy work that needs to be done, that could be shared. Everyone can do it, right? That would be one way to split things up. And then there's, of course, responses to this concerning like you know the efficient allocation of labor and so on but you also have to think about the costs which is the current situation whereas we said <laughs> people who are not only living in near poverty conditions also have to spend most of their time doing shitty work michael's just left i yeah. take it he's like fuck fuck <laughs> this work no actually what it is is he needs to get back to work work yeah he needs to go back to work work <laughs> sorry badlands doesn't count as work work <laughs> So I guess, I mean, just to bring it back to the UBI argument, at minimum, it's clear there's a lot of questions that need to be raised. And I mean, first of all, there's a question of whether it actually will undermine incentive to work, but there really needs to be a pretty strong, and I think a lot of people are increasingly aware of this, right? This kind of overwork culture that exists, uh, maybe maybe only in some 
pockets of society, though. Maybe in some areas that's even less clear than it used to be. But I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> the argument assumes that the loss of incentive to work is a bad thing. Yeah. And here's six arguments we've just gone over, probably plus a few more that came up, that it's not at all clear. It's not at all case. clear. And, and even if even if you can establish that it's bad, it's another thing to say, you know, people basically should be forced into working. As I say, the, the one thing, I guess, to note about this overall conversation that we ha- have had is it's actually, and this is standard of philosophy approach to, to things and, and probably just a major flaw in the way that philosophers organize all of their discussions. But we, <laughs> it's really half the conversation because we just considered all of the arguments in favor and then just like spend time knocking them down as opposed to giving all of the positive evidence that's available for the alternative position, which is it, it would be a good thing because people are overworked and, you know, all of the benefits that would come from reducing the need for, for work in the current, given the current state of things. I mean, there's also, and this is probably going to be a later episode. If you look at some of the countries that we would probably consider to be most socially progressive, so kinds of Scandinavian and Nordic countries that have, you know, generally, at least from the American sort of perspective, very socially progressive setup, their attitudes towards work are very much endorsing the kind of productivity, hard work kind mm-hmm. of ethic. So something else to look at is, you know, those as case mm-hmm. studies. They also work less, right? They work less. And they're also happier. <laughs> but they get back to work faster. And so, the, I mean, those just complicate the picture more. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, when we talk about work and family as a topic at some point, those are case studies where there's sort of still a commitment to hard work and letting people get back to work as early as possible. And people seem to be happy. They also have very robust social nets, social safety nets in place. So, Yeah, but here in the United States, we don't really care about happiness. We, we, would, we care more about just hours logged, and we also want that existential threat <laughs> hanging over our heads to mm-hmm. really push us in the direction of hard work. Yeah. If you're, if, if you're happy, it means you're doing it wrong. Right. Right. Getting away with something. Yeah. It's only okay in business. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we should stop there, for God's sake. <laughs> uh, thank you guys for that conversation. That was... Uh, very interesting and enjoyable. Yeah, sure. Oh, so, oh, sorry. Oh, okay, sorry. I thought it was. All right. <laughs> you can get back to work work now, Michael. You stop feeling guilty. I have work work to do now, too. Oh, thank I only have work. I got I to edit, edit this damn thing. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Badlands Politics and Philosophy Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, you can help it grow by subscribing and by giving it a good rating or a review. And don't forget to check out our website, badlandsphilosophy.com, where you can find a list of citations for every episode and access written content that we post there regularly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that through our website, and you can also find us on Twitter at at the Badlands Pod. Thanks again for listening.